welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson. Find me on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We've already talked about the craft and the industry, but uh, today we're taking a step back and looking at the medium of TV itself, as well as its impact on people and cultures. This is obviously a very vast subject and theme, so we're just nibbling at it with a few case studies that either influenced us or other people. People do entire PhDs on the influence of TV on culture, sometimes just one show, so we're not going to get anywhere in that depth, but we just want to talk about what interests us and some interesting case studies that have come up from that yeah this is just gonna be like a five minute quick convo right (laughs) (laughs) we'll see uh we'll see so nick i got like a really quick uh soundbite question uh, to ask you what do you think is the most influential tv show of all time oh that's an easy question that's not going to require any thought at all i mean yeah there's a lot involved in in that decision but the first thing that pops into my head as always if you've listened to any of our previous podcasts is going to be the price is right. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I was just trying to think of a good show to make a joke about. But at least for me, I think in terms of just like sheer cultural omnipresence, it's The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of points and we'll, I'm sure we'll delve into them in more depth. But firstly, it basically paved the way for adult animation as a respectable kind of art form on the air. I'm sure there had been attempts at it previously, but from the shorts and stuff that they had on the Tracy Ullman show through to actually getting their own show, The Simpsons was one of the very first cartoon shows on TV that was not just for kids. So, you know, we wouldn't have stuff like Family Guy, South Park, Rick and Morty, Daria, Beavis and Butthead, any of that, if The Simpsons hadn't come first and paved that way there simpsons like the beatles of animated tv yeah i mean i know a lot of friends actually who uh, when they were younger their parents would not allow them to watch the simpsons because it's kind of like really i don't know if it's controversial or too subversive but there's definitely a couple of friends that come to mind who they were allowed to watch tv but maybe things more like pbs than the simpsons Mm -hmm. and do you remember the whole maybe i don't know if you know about the whole like george Bush, not the not the son, but the the OG president. Mm-hmm. The whole thing about I think it was either him or his wife badmouthing the Simpsons in a speech and being like it was something akin to you know Americans should be closer to ex family from TV from some other like you know mm-hmm. good show versus and be less like the Simpsons. Oh really? And then I think there was an episode late- completely missing the point that it's a satire on American society. Exa- exa- yeah. Exactly. And then I think an episode I think a week after that or something like that they speed like animated one of the opening gags with Bart Simpson mm-hmm. drawing on the on the uh, blackboard something along the lines of I will not be like the Simpsons right. or like some, yeah, some yeah, in joke yeah. about that. I mean, it's funny because they did an episode with George Bush Sr. moving in as like the Bad Neighbors one or whatever. <laughs> They're hilarious. Like, so yeah. that was probably in response to that. Yeah. But I mean, that was another one of the great things you talked about, like maybe parents not letting their kids watch it, but it was just this like appealed across generations and age gaps and stuff. It was like, you know, animated and funny and interesting for younger people. And then the adults could still watch and get all these references and stuff, which I'm going to get into in just a second. So another thing is that The Simpsons actually established in a really big way referential humor, bringing that to the mainstream, the fact that being able to make like pop culture references and movie references and things like that the simpsons was one of really the harbingers of that as hugely like popular as that is now maybe it wasn't quite so much back then yeah the, the simpsons really brought the, it into the spotlight yeah i feel like the absurdist humor that you you brought up in an earlier episode uh john schwarzweiler mm-hmm. i think this kind of like absurdist humor regardless of animation or not like i thought it was the simpsons was kind of the first show on tv to really bring that almost like meta humor to tv mm-hmm. uh which is now almost like omnipresent within most comedies 
Yeah, a lot of the previous sitcoms were a bit more grounded and like here are some real family dynamics and working through real issues. Maybe there were some like really zany 80s ones like Elf and whatever, where it's like a high concept like that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, never quite that same referential stuff. I mean, I don't know if you listen to any of the DVD commentaries on The Simpsons, but um, yeah, yeah, they're they're really amazing. And what I really appreciate about them is learning about the different like show running style every Mm. season where they had this debate internally in terms of being grounded versus not being grounded. Yeah. I remember on one of the commentaries, you had Mike Scully, who was the showrunner for seasons like after the 97 or whatever. He didn't mention this kind of like ongoing debate, this balance of we want to stay grounded mm-hmm. versus we can take it as far as out of sp- literally out of space. Yeah. And so I think they constantly battle with that. And probably because they still wanted to be a satire that was mm-hmm. believable and that people could relate with yeah. or two. Precisely. I mean, it certainly fluctuated from season to season and and that kind of thing in terms of what they went with on that angle. So yeah, as you were saying with the satire, that is one of the other brilliant things about The Simpsons and its impact is it's so heavily satirical of particularly the American dream, you know, this nuclear family. They are literally a nuclear family. Homer works at a nuclear power plant. They have two and a (laughs) half kids. It's set in this amorphous Springfield because there's a town called Springfield in pretty much every state. They never reveal exactly where in America they are, although I think Matt Groening said it's based off of his hometown of Portland. It's interesting that until this very moment, I did not realize that it was two and a half kids. I guess it makes complete sense. Statistically, like people always say, oh, like the classic American family has two and a half kids. And so they literally (laughs) have half a kid with Maggie. That's That's right. So, you know, they they take down everything from sports um, to politics. How many times have you heard quotes from the Kang and Kodos (laughs) election episode in this election cycle? You know, don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. Um, Social class, uh, capitalism. You got Mr. Burns there. Anything from nerd culture with comic book guy. I heard a funny story that he was based off of the original like internet forums that were just coming out at the time that The Simpsons was, you know, popular. And there were people like typing away with, with their like opinion on The Simpsons. I think someone literally wrote like worst episode ever. Worst episode and, ever. And uh, they would actually read these things and take them into account in the writers' room back in those days. And maybe they're starting to do that again with Twitter. But anyway, yeah, that was kind of the. I mean, not to take anything away from the X Files as well, which was kind of the same period. But like the Simpsons on the comedy side was definitely the first show with such a heavy fandom and interaction mm. with the fandom online. Totally. Uh, with like news groups and like the websites you reference. Yeah, um, it's interesting for sure. Uh, so yeah, all of that stuff is just like so biting and like you can watch Simpsons episodes that are talking about like sports teams from the eighties and nineties or politics from the eighties and nineties and still laugh and find it funny. So there's something, you know, pure about that comedy and satire, even if you don't understand all the references. Yeah. Wasn't there an episode where it ended on Homer getting the Denver Broncos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, oh, Marge, you don't get it. I hate the Denver Broncos or whatever. Yeah. And, and that was referenced, I think a couple of years ago when the Denver Broncos kind of failed uh-huh. uh, their Super Bowl. Yeah, it, it's so cyclical. Every mm-hmm. time something comes up again, like history repeats itself, obviously. And then every, there's always a Simpsons reference for something. And that's the next thing I'm going to get into is the pop culture references and parodies have hugely influenced culture. It's this weird kind of like self-serving circle where The Simpsons created such a heavy amount of movie references and pop culture references within themselves. And they've now become this kind of like bastion of the most quoted, most referenced thing in the world is The Simpsons. I have entire conversations with my friends in Simpsons quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're constantly being posted all over the internet. You know, so it's this weird kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy where they've used all these references and they've become the thing that's now referenced themselves. Well, I remember you brought up the shinning as the yeah. way you discovered the movie or that being your first perspective 
better than that. Take. There are so many movies, particularly, you know, the Halloween Treehouse of Horror mm-hmm. episodes where they are parodying, you know, horror movies that w- I was probably too young to really be watching at the time. But that was my first exposure to a lot of those things like The Shining. Well, I, I vividly remember, I feel like they've parodied every classic Stanley Kubrick Certainly movie. Certainly Kubrick. Simpsons and, are in love and with the, Kubrick. And that, yeah. And so I feel like I can vividly remember every, like A Clockwork Orange, I can vividly remember yeah. that, that episode. Space Odyssey, Space all Odyssey. of that stuff. Um, yeah. There was a brilliant article that was written about it. I think it's like disappeared from the internet now. It's a conspiracy. It was on the Toronto oh. International Film Festival website. It was called Everything I Love About Film I Learned from the Simpsons. So if you can still find that on the yeah, internet. I think, I think the stone cutters, <laughs> they removed it from the <laughs> yeah, internet. They're trying to keep it down like the metric system. Yeah. <laughs> if you can find that, check it out. Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the dead link and maybe you can follow it. But another great one is there's actually like a video hosted on Vimeo or somewhere where it has side by side sort of like three or four minutes of visual movie references that have been replicated in the Simpsons. And you'll be like surprised. You're like, oh my God, that's from that. And you know, when you go and watch those movies later, you're like, oh wait, that was in the Simpsons. I remember very vividly watching a live performance of Beauty and the Beast with my girlfriend when I was like 18 or something. And they were doing the song, Be My Guest. And I was sitting there like, this sounds so familiar. Wait a minute, this is a ripoff of See My Vest. And she's like, no, you idiot. It's the other way around. Like, oh my God. Like, it's this weird, like reverse culture thing where you've been exposed to so much of it from the Simpsons and then you experience it yourself. In some way, the Simpsons has such a like wide dictionary of references. It mm. really goes all the way from Chip and A to Chip, Chip and Z. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's that's my little case for The Simpsons being the most like omnipresent, hugely influential piece of television culture of all time. But I'm open to other ideas. Well, what are your well, thoughts? I don't know. I mean, I, as much as I love The Simpsons, you, you were talking about The Simpsons as impact on, I feel like, cultural level and, mm-hmm. and kind of like a pop culture element to Prevalence, it. Prevalence. Yeah. Um, exactly. While we're thinking about the, the topic at hand, my mind immediately went to Star Trek. I think Star Trek has and had a huge influence on America and the world and society itself in very different ways. On some level, in terms of the content of Star Trek, you look at the world where we live in right now, I feel like we desperately need and needed a Star Trek show a few years ago, mainly because I feel like it's a reflection. Like if, if The Simpsons is a reflection of what America is or wants to be, I feel like Star Trek is a reflection of what it should be potentially mm-hmm. down the line. So Gene Roddenberry kind of created this utopic world where you have obviously a very diverse cast and which we'll get to in a second. But really, the, the world itself was this like utopic vision of unity after World War II. Mm-hmm. And when did Star Trek first come out? 70? The 60s, yeah. 60s. It, was like, oh, okay. it was kind of like the 60s like era of like utopia. And it was like, yeah, I think it was like 66. Yeah, Simpsons yeah. was like 88, 89. Actually, yeah, it is 66 because this year is the 50th anniversary of yeah, Star Trek. Nice. But what's interesting is that if you look at the utopia that we have in Star Trek, within the canon of the show, it was born out of the ashes of World War Three, like oh, yeah. the worst disaster of mankind. <laughs> that got That's tr- coming next year after Trump gets elected. Well, I mean, you joke, but uh, in the in the in the universe, uh, one of I don't know if it's the trigger, but there was something that happened right before World War Three, and that is that Ireland seceded from the UK. Oh my god! Wow. So we may be headed to that. On the bright side, if we're still alive after World War Three, Utopia is, is right around the corner. <laughs> it was kind of this idea that you know America and the world should be together. And I mean, if you look at the bridge of the Enterprise, you have a Russian, you know, Chekhov, mm-hmm. and you you know you have a, like a, a lot of diversity. But in terms of like the impact on society and culture, I feel like Star Trek has so much or had so much impact on STEM fields and research and science and technology. I think they like NASA has like an official page like breaking down all the different influences that star trek has had on it yeah it's gonna be one of the first times that, that like women would have been depicted on screen as like scientists and engineers and things like that for sure oh, absolutely i mean still it, struggling to do that today yeah. 
I, I do believe that, for better or for worse, science fiction is the only genre where diversity is not frowned upon or like diversity is actually pushed mm -hmm. actively within the constraints of the genre. And if you look at, I mean, you just said it yourself, like if you look at law shows or cop shows, it's definitely not as diverse as real life. And yet if you look at sci-fi, which is theoretically not constrained by real life, you have a much diverse element of casting. The classic example for the original series was obviously Nichelle Nichols. There was even a point during the original show where she was considering leaving Star Trek because she was, I think, a theater actress before the show. And she just got offered a job on Broadway singing. And that was basically her dream job. I think Star Trek was a step to that. So she definitely considered leaving this dingy sci-fi show that was about to be canceled to live her dream of being a Broadway star. And she was at a NAACP uh, fundraiser event. And she met or was approached by Dr. Martin Luther King uh, junior himself. Or? Ju junior, yeah, <laughs> senior, senior. Not the one from uh, the 1600s? No, 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 yeah. 1600s, exactly. Uh, well, that would be weird. That would be straight out of a Star Trek <laughs> episode. But basically, he, you know, they had a conversation and he pointed out that, you know, whether you like it or not, you have become this symbol. And if you leave the show, you can just be replaced by any just like blonde haired white girl. Mm -hmm. And it will just be as if you were never there to begin with. Yeah. And um, she was this great symbol. There's this brilliant story about Whoopi Goldberg. Um, you see it all over the internet. I can't find the original source, but, um, essentially Whoopi was watching Star Trek one day as a kid sitting out in front of the TV and she saw Uhara on, on the screen and she called her mom over and she's like, mom, look, there's someone who looks like me on TV and she's not a maid. You know, it's how amazing, yeah. impactful is that? And that gave her the confidence and the belief that she could do that as well. And she wanted to become you know, one of the most popular and great kind of yeah, actors of that yeah, time. Yeah, uh, let's be real. She has an EGOT. Okay, this is a whoopee gold. Yeah. She has an EGOT. And then she was on Star Trek TNG. You know, it's kind of right, the yeah. circle of life. It's really cool. But really, I feel like just like Nichelle Nichols being brought back by Luther King or Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, there's even the story. This is like a longer story. But did you know, Nick, that Lucible saved Star Trek without her production company after the show got canceled? She loved Star Trek. And so she I think she bought the rights to the show or some some version of that and helped produce the original motion picture. Wow. Um, so Ball is one of the most important people in television history for so many reasons. Really. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should do an episode just on Lucille yeah, Ball. She created the multicam. Like, and really? Like, well, in a way, like they only ever used to record and broadcast live. She convinced the studio to start taping it. And they didn't understand like the importance of <laughs> holding the rights to these tapes. So they just gave them to her. And then so she held the, <laughs> the, the rights to the recordings of uh, I Love Lucy for perpetuity and made a ton of money off. Damn, I, I was going to say, that's a crazy amount of money. That would definitely not happen today. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just to go back to sci-fi and Star Trek, I really feel like whether you're looking at technology, whether you're looking at just diversity, culture, Star Trek has had such an impact on people and the medium that uh, you just can't deny the power of the Trek. So when we say the most influential show of all time, there are obviously different measures of influence. There are a whole bunch of sitcoms in the 50s, 60s, 70s that shaped American culture in a fundamentally important way in regards to civil rights, women's rights, diversity, stuff like I Love Lucy, All in the Family, The Jeffersons. So in terms of what's actually helped the world in a utilitarian way, these shows could definitely be seen to be more influential than, say, The Simpsons. I was kind of speaking about The Simpsons in, in, in terms of like pure saturation and omnipresence and popularity all over the world. It has to be the show that has generated the most amount of revenue of all time, right? I have no doubt. I know Seinfeld is definitely big up there with all mm -hmm. of their kind of like stuff, but The Simpsons has just had so much merchandise and recordings and things like that. It it's would like, not surprise me. It's like the Star Wars of TV. Yeah, 100%. So in terms of the way that comedy has actually influenced culture in those really important social ways, as lighthearted as comedy may appear, it does reveal truth about 
people or society. And that's what makes it funny. And it's that classic saying, you know, it's funny because it's true. Let's look at like All in the Family, uh, the classic Norman Lear sitcom with Archie Bunker. It changed American cultural values because he set this character of Archie Bunker up as a bigot. He was one of the lead characters in this thing and he was a horrible person. But they, <laughs> they managed to draw comedy off of that, not by punching down at the people that he was, you know, bigoted towards, but by really analyzing and criticizing his views on the world through the lens of everyone else around him. So they would he's, have... He's sorry. like the foil of society itself. Yeah, he is representing all those views in society that were abhorrent to, you know, the vast liberal majority of people, but were ones that some people would still identify with, especially in those times where views weren't also liberal. There's this great story that Norman tells that I've been to a few events where he's kind of talked about it. Nixon, Richard Nixon is on tape in the Watergate tape saying that Archie Bunker is a good fellow. Why can't more Americans be like him? So oh there were God. people who needed to hear this stuff and needed to watch this and have their views shaped and changed by, you know, tearing down that bigotry. So, so wait, does that mean is normally you're on Nixon's enemy list or friends list? Uh, <laughs> this is very confusing. That is confusing. Maybe if he ever figured out that this guy was someone who was being satirized, then he would he would do that. Just like George Bush in the Simpsons. I don't know. <laughs> so there were great things that they did with All in the Family, particularly in, in representation of African-Americans and stuff. Like they had perhaps an inter- interracial relationship. I know stuff. Patrick, I think, had the first interracial kiss on TV. Right. I mean, uh, there's also, although it's not, I don't know if it's the first same-sex kiss, but yeah. uh, Deep Space Nine did a same-sex kiss. Yeah, exactly. So all that kind of stuff could be kind of like analyzed in this lens of people might not even realize that they're really having their views challenged because they're enjoying a sitcom. There's laughs every now and then. Right. It's like, wow, there are things actually influencing these people. Like we were saying before, I Love Lucy was another incredible one, pioneer of sitcom. 1951, 1957 was when it was around. And the other lead, with Lucy, who was obviously a woman, was Desi Arnaz, her real-life husband. He was the band leader in the show and that kind of thing. He was Hispanic. So this is the 50s, the early 50s. You have a woman and a Hispanic man leading a show on television. So basically more progressive than 2016, right? Yeah, basically. uh, This is like more diverse than most of the Warner Brothers (laughs) multi-cams right now. So so throughout that period onwards, you had this explosion of representation, particularly of African-American people in TV comedy. So very early on Bill Cosby was one of the pioneers of that as much as a horrible person he is now and I don't really like talking about him because of that but you know, he was in I Spy. There was Diane Carroll in Julia. I think she was the first African-American woman in as a lead in you know a TV comedy. There was the Flip Wilson show, which is a variety show that really influenced and paved the way. That was in like 1970, 74. Paved the way for people like Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, and Dave Chappelle. You know, if those men didn't have Flip Wilson as a role model on TV, maybe they never would have realized that they were allowed to do that, that they could get up and do that and people would appreciate it and not kind of like shot them down or... Mm. You know, and we would have been, the world would have been deprived of those great talents. And then it just flowed on from there. You've got everything through the generation of the Jeffersons. Uh, one of my favorite sitcoms of all time is The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. These days we have Blackish, all that kind of please, thing. Please don't sing the, the theme song. I don't think we can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond just even like race or diversity of color, I think there's also the sexual identity. This is probably a topic for the 90s and the early 2000s. But if you look at a lot of cable shows like Queer as Folk, the L Word, even Six Feet Under or Will and Grace on network. These were shows that had huge impact on the depiction of same-sex relationships on TV as normal people. In my mind, it's kind of similar to this play called Angels in America about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, and that was a play from the early 90s, which was then seen 
definitely adapted into an HBO miniseries. But in my mind, that those shows had the same impact in relation to TV as what Angels in America did for theater in the 90s. Yeah, it began to normalize sexuality in such a way that they're not just like the stereotypical gay best friend. They can be the leads as well, and they don't need to have all of these like stereotypical traits about them to be a protagonist or to be someone to that define, we can relate yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, to define them, exactly. Dawson's Creek, I think, was another one. I, I don't know the exact thing, but I think it was one of the first gay male kisses on television. I was listening to a, um, a podcast at the Austin ATX where they talked about how much stuff they had to go through with the network and what they were allowed to show, how much coverage they were allowed to have of it, even in those years. It's very interesting because I'll just like for two seconds briefly <laughs> talk about Warwick Pines, oh, which yeah. I just finished the second season this week. And in terms of like standards and practices, I can't believe, okay, I'm going to like spoil a little bit about Warwick Pines, but they had as a twist reveal in the second season, spoiler alert for a second, so there's this couple that were struggling with having a baby, whatever it is. And then the twist is revealed that the woman is actually the mother of the other guy. Oh, wow. And neither of them know about it. And like, that's the big reveal is you have for the whole season, unbeknownst to you, you have an incestuous wow. mother-son relationship on primetime network television. Oh, so let's talk about the <laughs> that yeah, extensive it's, practices. Jeez. But yeah, one of the things they were talking about was, so it was Jack was the character who had this kiss on TV and they made them like shoot coverage of them from literally across the street, like really far away. So you couldn't really see it mm -hmm. just in case the network needed to go with that shot. Like they weren't allowed to see it up close. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. crazy. Even crazy. as recently as then, that would have been like what the early 2000s or something. Yeah. Yeah. Dawson's, yeah. Um, so yeah. And all things like that. Now we have shows or had shows like faking it, which was great. It represented the full kind of like spectrum of sexuality that all of LGBT. IQ, like it had intersex people, it had asexual people, things that still aren't really being represented. Uh, like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend these days is great because it's representing you know, bisexuality, things like that. We have Jessica Jones, which, I mean, A, that still has representation of, uh, you know, gay relationships and stuff on there. But what was really great about that is it allowed kind of survivors of sexual violence to relate to her and feel empowered by her actions and her victories. That relationship with the Purple Man is a classic abusive relationship and people will recognize that in anyone who's ever experienced that or had friends who've gone through that and that kind of thing so and that is again the power of genre i feel like you can mm -hmm. tell the stories and and move it further within the constraint of maybe a different story we're going to talk more about catharsis later but i feel like those elements of genre and science fiction and fantasy allow stories to go further if anything just because of standards and practices yeah. but but allows allows things there's this french book about television that got published a few years ago and the title is les miroirs obscurs which broadly speaking means the the black mirror this is what tv is if you switch it off that's what the screen is behind mm -hmm. you in front of you it's it's a black mirror that's and and this this like came out tv show black yeah mirror. i was gonna say this to do as well yeah. exactly and that was you know that book came out like years before black mirror was a mm -hmm. thing but i mean I'm, I'm sure the black mirror the show the title signifies probably the same, same thing, thing yeah. yeah and so it's really kind of this like chicken and egg situation where you have shows representing culture but also culture being impacted and influenced by television yeah exactly and that's why anytime someone says oh it's just tv or it's just a movie in relation to like like whitewashing or something like that like they're dead wrong it's it influences culture directly and it reflects the culture that we have like tv is us you know whoa that's deep tv, TV. <laughs> it's not tv it's us right that's like the, the new hbo, uh, new HBO show. <laughs> i'll pitch it to them for uh, yeah <laughs> So yeah, like TV both reflects society and shapes it, like you said. 
um, you know, there, we run into issues when everyone's just claiming to reflect what's really in the world, but they're reflecting some kind of distorted image. And mm-hmm. then that, in effect, you know, so say with representation, if they think that they have a diverse cast, but it's like one person of color and everyone else is white, they're like, yeah, this is the makeup of American society. And they think that that's what they're reflecting without realizing it's nothing like that. Yeah, I mean, it, for, it, it starts also, to come back and then that, that influences society and people think that about it. So. Absolutely. I mean, I think it also puts an unnecessary burden on shows with a more diverse cast. The obvious example, recent examples would be shows like Blackish and Fresh Off the Boat, where you've had a lot of pushback with Fresh Off the Boat specifically. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of discussions about how the show represents Asian American communities yeah. and this idea that because it is one, if not the only show about Asian American family, it should be the show that should represent Asian American families when it shouldn't yeah, be. That, that should shouldn't be. have to be the case. Yeah. Like It sucks that there are so few of these shows on the air that when they are there, and same with characters who are people of color within other shows or, you know, represent a sexuality or something like that. They have the burden of these entire groups placed solely upon them because they are the only ones representing them. And so they're like, whatever this happens to this character and whatever happens in this show is now speaking for all of us in our community and reflecting on that. So then there's these unfair standards placed against it when realistically you should just be able to have a show that maybe focuses narrowly on the experiences of, I think, fresh off the boat, their family from Taiwan without having the, the unfortunate reality of every other like Asian American community going, well, this doesn't represent Korean Americans and this doesn't represent Japanese Americans and or this is not like mainland China and that kind of thing. So one of the better representation of what's going on in the industry is the episode Engines on TV from Master of None. I thought that was a really, I don't know if you've seen it. Oh but, yeah, that's brilliant. But that yeah. was kind of like a really clear depiction of, oh, I guess we're going to have like one Indian guy, but if we have two, then I guess it's an Indian show. Yeah. It's just like this like weird and messed up relationship. <laughs> We just spent about half an hour talking about American shows and it's their influences on American culture, but we are not originally from America. And mm-hmm. I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the impact of TV globally and, and how TV exports and how that works. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really sticks out for me in comedy is this notion of British versus American humor. They are very different kind of like schools of comedy in a way. I'm a huge lover of British humor. I love everything Monty Python, you know, Peep Show, Fry and Laurie, Blackadder, Red Dwarf, all of that kind of stuff, the British office. So, you know, when I find out like Americans here who even know a lot of those shows, it's like finding a unicorn. So I think Australians are more in line with their British sense of humor and maybe we have some kind of deals in the Commonwealth that get those shows broadcast a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I think NBC just launched an OTT called NBC CISO mm-hmm. and most of their content is actually, they have, I think, all of Monty Python. They have a lot of those kind Oh, like yeah. obscure British television shows. That's awesome. But I mean, Australian culture is comes from British culture anyway, so I feel like that influences there. But, you know, as a result, I don't like a lot of the American remakes. I never really got into the American office. Uh, did, you know, did you know there's a French remake called Le Bureau? <laughs> Le, <laughs> Le there's, Bureau. A French, there's a French remake of The Office. Uh, yeah. Nice. True story. <laughs> horrible, <laughs> horrible tr- true story. <laughs> <laughs> what do they, what's the product that they, I know the British one, it's a paper factory. I think it, or yeah, I think it's, it's also paper. Well? I think it's also paper factory. Okay, yeah. not croissants. <laughs> uh, I will not even rimshot this. No, no thanks. Hard pass. So yeah, like some things as it is just don't translate. That's why, you know, so often America will buy formats from the UK or from Australia and they will remake it with their American sensibilities. Part of it, I think, uh, if you look at the reasons why American remake British shows, I mean, it's definitely not the language barrier because we both speak English. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of commercial reasons in terms of business. They begin to, they now own more of it and can make more money yeah. off of it. But aside from 
that, there are obviously other factors. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying also to jump off on that business reason, they, they can bring in a known talent. Bill Cosby replaced uh, Richard Wilson on, on one foot in the grave, and that's probably because Richard Wilson is less known in the in America than Bill Cosby. There's also part of the, do you think like some of the humor is also tied to location? Like how, how much of it is, you know, references that only British people would get versus what American people would get? Yeah, that's certainly a factor as well. And even just like you say language isn't an issue, but sometimes it can be. There are little words here and there and references and just like minor idioms that will like kind of bump people because they're like, what is this? Like there are popular British shows that have now come over from, you know, deals with Netflix and whatever, like skins and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, even Downton Abbey, anything, Luther. And there will be certain things in there that Americans be like, what the hell are they saying? Or like, you know, people right. have those like intense kind of like London scousy accents mm -hmm. and stuff. And people are like, I can't understand it. I need subtitles. It's still the same language, but it's so different. Yeah, I thought the trigger to remake something is easier pulled with comedies than drama because you're bringing that, mm -hmm. you know, Downton Abbey, which is, I think most of these shows are literally tied to location. Like yeah. Downton Abbey is precisely because it's Downton Abbey. Even Skins is precisely because it's in London. Yeah, and you can't and make Downton Abbey. <laughs> Downton Alley. <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that. It's a slightly different it's, it's show. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. Uh, are, we, are, we are we talking like South Central or da Downtown? <laughs> Down not to be confused with Downtown Alley. Be yeah. a different show. But no, it's like, it's like you know, Skins is, is very location-based. But if you look at something like the IT Crowd, which was remade with Joel McHale over here. or oh, Was um, that horrible? It was horrible. Much yeah. like Coupling. I would definitely uh, oh, recommend yeah. you to uh, never watch the American version <laughs> of Coupling. But the, these are clearly more comedic, lower stakes almost universal stories rather than being tied to specific locations yeah they're office comedies there are things like that and it's not even just comedy or even american products being remade or british products being remade mm -hmm. There's Swedish shows like Acta Minus Core, and that's obviously more of a language issue. But if you look at Acta Minus Core versus Humans, which is the American version on the MC, there are very similar story threads. So I feel like it's arguably closer one-to-one -one remake than something that's adapted. I think that the adaptation component differs depending on the product. Yeah, I mean, one of the most well-known ones was what, Le Revenant in France became, Le Revenant, yeah. uh, became uh, The Returned. And then I think what happened after that is yeah, there's, like there's a, yeah, there's someone else tried to adapt it again. Yeah, I think Colton Cues did something for a &E, And I think even like a network show, they were like at least three to four different shows about the same concept. Even CBS tried to, no pun intended, resurrect an old pilot <laughs> about resurrection or specifically yeah. like a zombie. And, and so, yeah, that was definitely in the air, so to speak. Talking about like location-based shows, you have like Law & Order UK with Jamie Bember from Battlestar Galactica that is being made. TV doesn't have to be just a reflection of one culture, but it can just move globally. Why do you think The Simpsons exported so well? Humor is so local on some level. Like, why do you think The Simpsons is so uh, universal? I mean, there are a number of factors there, I think. Even though it's a strict parody of American culture, American culture is a proxy for like the global culture in a lot of ways because it's so prevalent. So people will still get American pop culture references regardless of what country you live in because we've been exposed to Hollywood and, and television and all that kind of thing. But aside from that, animation is actually very easy to sell overseas. Um, if, you know, if it's popular and if people are interested, because they can just dub over the voices in the native language. They don't need to like subtitle it. They don't need to like remake the, reshoot the entire thing. You know, that's why like Disney movies and stuff do so well internationally as well, because they have this kind of like appeal and they can voice it's, it with their own language. It's almost like universal stories. Like, I mean, is. Avatar yeah. is kind of a universal like love story, like Pocahontas type story. Mm -hmm. And that can translate well overseas. I mean, if you look at the American shows doing well overseas in Europe, at least you have a strong, strong 
presence with procedurals, house, NCIS, and those are money makers for uh, CBS or Fox or whoever owns the IP. Even here in America, if you look at yeah. the top ratings, it's all procedurals. Those are the ones that are raking in the big things on networks. Like you might look at this like high concept cable drama and be like, these are the best shows on TV and these are the shows that everyone should love. But the ones that are bringing in the numbers and the money are the big network procedurals. For sure. I mean, we can you know ask ourselves why is that? Because potentially Mad Men doesn't speak to French culture mm -hmm. as NCIS or just the average reason that maybe someone just wants to see a closed-ended episode of, of something. It's in the same way that like big blockbuster action movies and stuff can go and be sold in China and other markets and that sort of thing within reason. You know, there are certain rules that they have to abide by, but those have a global appeal, whereas like indie dramas and everything aren't going to be able to go worldwide. I think I, I mentioned in the previous episode, the, the name of the game is IP rights, and it's who owns the content and can distribute it worldwide. And we, we have this like dichotomy right now in, in movies where media is the biggest US export. And China is becoming the largest market for that, especially on the feature side. So on some level, because of the rules of China imports and, and movies and so on, you could have, and it's already kind of the case with movies like Doctor Strange, where you already have a compromise happening creatively before production even begins on some level, replacing a character that's from Tibet with someone else. And you may wonder, like, how does that impact TV? Because we're not yet at a point where you have a China America co-productions, but it's right around the corner. So do you think that's going to impact the values and the content of American television? Like how much of that do you think has any influence? Yeah, that's a big question. I think we yeah, probably have a quick, whole episode about that. But, <laughs> quick five uh, second uh, soundbite. Certainly for now, it's going to impact feature films a lot more because the market and the, the profit models and stuff are just a lot easier for them to invest in than the whole the whole television system with studios and networks and ownership and profit participation and back end. And like, it, it's just a whole Stacking different game. rights. Yeah, it's, it's a whole different game. And it's a lot harder to get the same level of profit out of immediately and without interference from too many different parties so i think tv is safe for the meantime but as stuff like streaming and whatever happens to continue on maybe those things will change i am not an expert in the area right. i will say that that also the way people watch tv changes downloading is a big thing in the rest of the world especially downloading american shows because they don't have access day one to that content they only see shows, or at least they used to, only see those American shows either dubbed and or a year after the American airing. And so now that people are accustomed to other ways of watching it, that has a different, I think, distribution model and a different impact in terms of what American shows, like the propagation of American culture beyond you know, just the American borders is because we have the internet and we have these elements where we're not shackled to a black box that only broadcasts linearly one episode after the next. You can do whatever you want. I think that's how you grew up with TV, and that's how I grew yeah, up with TV. Yeah. And I think that influence cannot be overstated. Certainly, like America's had this big foot up in media production, and, and that kind of had this monopoly on it for so long. But now that the distribution methods are so much more sophisticated and, and widespread, I think we're going to start seeing stuff like television shows from China, like actually people going and seeking the great stuff that they're making there and bringing it back to the States as a format or, or whatever it happens to be. And places like, you know, India, like they're movie industry is huge and so there might be more integration of that with us rather than just america sending everything out we might start to be bringing more stuff in and have more kind of multicultural television influence definitely i mean that's why we have so many uh, european shows now on tv yeah but you know maybe we can start looking outside of the western world a little and white people what come on come on <laughs> <laughs> 
So we've now spoken about the huge cultural and international ways in which television has had an influence on society and groups of people, but ultimately it does come back down to that personal level and how television influences every individual, whether it influences them as an isolated kind of person or, you know, socially in in smaller groups and communities and things. What are your kind of thoughts on television's impact on a personal level, Alex? A lot of people criticize screen-based media, whether phones or TV or computers, as alienating people or isolating you. But I think it's actually the complete opposite. I think social engagement, when it comes to people sharing their love of a medium or an art form or whatever it is, actually brings them closer together. From my own personal experience, you know, I I have a single tear right now as I'm about to tell a story of being ostracized from middle school. But uh, no, you know, when I moved to a different school and I didn't really have many friends and then I would turn to TV and that's how initially I had this really emotional connection to TV shows and you know I joined online communities and that's how I met most of the people I know around the world or even in France most of my friends actually initially I met through online communities you know mm-hmm. discussing Battlestar Galactica or even Lost or any other show 24 and those shows as soon as you start to kind of actively think about the content and what it means to you as a person and what it means to you as a human being really tv is such an intimate medium like a lot of people don't think of tv as that intimate because it's a mass medium but really it's characters coming into your home and you have this almost weekly interaction with them you see them for half an hour or an hour and then off they go in that time with internet and we talked about the simpsons and x-files and so on mm-hmm. you, you you can have a forum online where you can discuss characters and the things you love and things you hate yeah, it's, it's a shared experience you're all relating to these same group of people it's almost like you have like a group of mutual friends who right, you're like exactly. encountering every week and you can talk about that and stuff i think there's probably somewhere on, on the internet a bunch of kind of like anthropological and sociological analysis of this but i see certainly tv show fandom and culture as one of those things where back in the day people would identify as like a punk or a goth or that mm-hmm. kind of thing maybe these days it's a little more nuanced and like you know you can sort yourself into that group by like I'm a Lost fan or I'm a whatever fan rather than these broad kind of like social movements. It's these more kind of like microcosm type thing groups that you identify with. And then you will take things like when you see these huge places like Comic-Con and everything, people pride themselves on buying merchandise and posters and things to like display to other people that I am a a member of this in-group along with you. And then people connect over that and that kind of thing. So it is this like social facilitator. Yeah, I mean, at Comic-Con you have so many panels that are just like fandom panels. This is the place where all the fans of Teen Wolf gather to see each other. And you can connect instantly because you instantly have something in common and often the themes of those shows and the things that they cover will self-select the kind of people who are interested in them. So you'll find that if you're someone who likes Teen Wolf, you also like Fallout Boy or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Well, that's a weird correlation, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I don't know. But, you know, they might like the same kind of music or the same kind of books or, you know, the same thing with like genre. Like genre sci-fi fans will find that they love like playing board games and all this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So people come together and find that they have mutual interests based off of this one unifying kind of group. And then we become friends. Um, (laughs) But what do you think about TV as catharsis, like as a medium to watch Mm. and live things through that medium? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, one of the very first books I ever read about screenwriting was called Psychology for Screenwriters. We'll we'll put a link to it in the thing. And it fascinated me because I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And what it talked about was a lot of a lot of like Freudian theory, a lot of kind of like other theorists and stuff, Jung with his like archetypes, and then some more, you know, 
know, later stuff like social psychology and things. But it was all about how we identify with these characters on the screen and the stories that are being told in a way that's like gratifying for the human mind. So this goes all the way back to Aristotle's Poetics. Oh yeah, just uh, I, I think I read it when I was in like second grade. And was, like, <laughs> oh yes, quick yeah. read, quick read. You know, a little little term. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. This notion of catharsis. So there's this idea that when we're watching a story, we identify with a character, and they they almost become like a proxy for us. We're putting out. That's why in action movies and stuff, you'll have these very bland main characters, like let's say Neo in The Matrix. He's really not that interesting of a person. Oh, come on, of himself. come on. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> it's dude. a great great choice for Keanu Reeves. Um, <laughs> sorry, Keanu, another another enemy. Um, and because we can project ourselves onto that person and experience that world and that story and that journey through them by, by imagining that we are them. You know, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, I'm such a Carrie, you know, from Sex and the City, or I'm a Rachel from Friends or whatever. People will identify with these characters and they will define themselves according to that. I'm such a Carrie from Carrie, the Stephen King <laughs> That'd be an interesting one. So, you know, we live out our desires and fantasies and triumphs through these people and, and television more so than a movie. Like you're done after two hours in a movie and like, that was great. Maybe if it's a really memorable character, it sticks in your head. But TV is this ongoing journey and you're constantly checking back in with them every week. And it brings us joy and elation. Even stuff like horror allows us to feel scared and have that adrenaline rush safely. And, and uh, so that, <laughs> that's this idea of catharsis that we're talking about and why we're kind of like linked in our minds to the characters on screen and why that's it's important to us and it's not just oh it's just tv these are real people and real things in our head that we are connected to isn't that why hbo says it's not tv it's hbo it's because they do content that wants to transcend the box right they, they want to show that tv had the, for the longest time the stigma that it was the stupid box it was just like things mm -hmm. you would watch and it'd just be dumb shows and you wouldn't be thinking about it you just like sit on your couch and just watch passively but we now know thanks to hbo thanks to amc fx that it's much more than that it is an art form it's something akin to books it is something akin to movies plays music paintings you know, paintings. You know it's, it's the it's stigma only exists and is now starting to fade away because it's a more recent medium and a more recent medium that started to be taken seriously video games are still struggling to be taken seriously as an art form Absolutely. despite the fact Absolutely. that there are so many incredible things coming mm -hmm. out these days with the wonderful narratives and that immersion i think as soon as vr really takes off people are going to stop thinking i mean it'll take them a while again yeah. but that will become yeah, an I art mean, form and, you know. this is like a small tangent but i think like vr to me brings the passive entertainment of features and tv and mm -hmm. the active entertainment of gaming so if you look at bioshock infinite or the last of us they have triple a narrative and then once you combine with that next level of interactivity i think it pushes the medium i mean vr is, a, is a, an incredible medium that yeah I I'm, I'm really excited i don't think i've ever really used vr so I'm oh really yeah you should uh you should try that htc mm -hmm. vibe man i'll mm -hmm. blow your mind going back to television there are obviously shows that have affected us in a personal way and so we just want to share a few anecdotes from that one show that i discovered more recently once it was into its second season is you're the worst on fx great show really great comedy by stephen falk the reason that i discovered it is because i was working on the muppets and two of the writers on that were writers on you're the oh, worst really? as well and i was like i keep hearing such great things about the show and now i know these guys who write for it i've got to go watch it and i binge watched it all over like christmas new year's last year and i can't recommend it enough i'm excited for it to come back for season three very soon. Is, isn't that the 
final season? I think so. Oh. I think that's all they're doing. But um, so anyway, in You're the Worst, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. Basically, the character of Gretchen, there are two main characters, Jimmy and Gretchen, and they, they have a love interest. Gretchen has depression, and that slowly comes out over the episodes. And Jimmy discovers that, and he has to kind of deal with that and figure out, you know, how to navigate that with someone that he loves. <laughs> and I'll remind you, this is a comedy, right? So it, it is <laughs> Laugh very, out loud. It's a very funny comedy. So I really tapped into this because years ago, I did have a girlfriend who was severely depressed. I've been through depression myself for a long period and, you know, managed to get help and come out of that. But this Jimmy Gretchen relationship was so real to me because I had literally been there. You know, it, it made me stop and think like, man, was I actually doing enough to help and understand and this person? You know, it's such a hard thing to do, but they really explored it so purely and truthfully on this screen. There's this moment where he's going to run away and basically cheat on her with this other woman that he met in a bar and she pulls up at the front and he has to like, he's standing there forced to make the decision whether he's going to go back in and be with Gretchen or run off and escape the problems and stuff. And uh, he ultimately makes the decision to go back inside. He goes and she's just been like laying on the floor for like days. He goes and lays next to her and she like starts crying because he's kind of made that choice to be with her. And I was honestly bawling my eyes out because I could relate to that so much. And it's a real thing that people experience. And once again, this is a comedy. It's still hilarious yeah. throughout, but there are these real moments that people can tap into. And it's like, wow, this is truth and this is art. It's incredible. The moments we remember from TV, like the one you just shared, are the more intimate ones. There's this thing about less is more. And I think TV, you can bury it under artifice of explosions mm -hmm. and visuals and whatnot. But even genre shows, when it comes down to it, the real moments you remember are the very raw, intimate elements. A show that obviously comes to mind for me is uh, is Buffy. There's an episode called The Body where Buffy's mother, um, Joyce, dies. And Buffy is a show that usually obviously has death in it, but mm -hmm. is usually dealt with in very fantastical, gruesome ways. reality. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And this was an episode that literally it opens with Buffy coming home and she sees the body of her mother lying on the couch. And there's no music. It's just like that visual. And you just stay there for a few minutes and you realize what's happening. And no, she's not going to come back to life as a vampire or whatever it is. Like, she's just a human person dead. And that that was like one of the arguably one of the greatest episodes of TV I've seen. But because mm -hmm. it is such a minimalistic perception of what death is and, and really raw. I mean, even in The Simpsons, to keep coming back to that, there are some really heartbreaking moments. Uh, one of the classic ones that a lot of people remember is when Lisa had Lisa's substitute teacher, Mr. Bergstrom, she forms this relationship with him and he's finally like encouraging her to really go for her dreams and she's not being made fun of for being academic and smart and interested. And um, she's chasing him down as he's leaving on this train and he gives her this note that says, we'll help her. And then she opens it up and all it says is, you are Lisa Simpson. This is a really touching moment. There's another really great one in an episode about Homer's mom. Um, she's been kind of like absent from his life for a very long time. And she comes back, he reconnects with her. And then, you know, they make plans or something. She doesn't ever show up. She's kind of like skipped town and left him again. And he is just out in the middle of the desert, sitting on the hood of his car, looking up at the stars, missing his mom and that kind of goes for the entirety of like the credits he's just there and it's such a haunting image and yeah. touching so i mean both uh both of those characters were played uh, respectively by i think dustin hoffman and glenn close mm -hmm. uh, really great actors incredible um yeah. and yeah i mean i i had to also bring up another death <laughs> show 
uh, not to bring everybody down at this point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Six Feet Under already brought up, obviously, the catharsis of the series finale. But there was something earlier in that final season that happened where one of the major characters dies. And it's played very straight and very raw and very emotional. And the next episode is his burial, which is very raw and powerful and in nature. And I actually have, um, I went to an art exhibit a few years ago in New York. And it was like an exhibit about HBO shows. And there was this art piece of portraying the the burial of uh, that character, and I bought it, and it's framed, and it's like oh, yeah, right over here. Yeah, it's one of the quintessential moments of television I can remember. It's really beautiful. So taking all of these things into account and the incredible influence that television can have on people at an individual level, on a group level, on a society, cultural, global, worldwide level, it's clear that this is much more than just an idiot box. It's much Mm -hmm. more than that. It's art. It's something that if you are taking it upon yourself to be a television writer, you're kind of wielding a great power and a great responsibility, to quote (laughs) Spider-Man. So Comic books, another great (laughs) Exactly. So really think about how will you, as a writer, influence culture with your work? How will you influence people and affect them emotionally, psychologically? You know, what is it that you have to say and what's important to you? If you have something to say in your writing, and it doesn't have to be on the nose or anything like that, but if you, if you can understand the, the core idea of either your message or, or the emotional outburst that you want to give through your characters, that will transcend your writing to a level that few people attain, really. Yeah, it's it's very hard to balance all of those things in such a great way that you tell a compelling story that also really means something. But when you do hit home, those particular episodes we've pointed out of certain shows, people remember it their entire life and it affects them and influences them. So I don't think there could be any greater reward for our work than that. Yeah, and I don't think we even have like resources of takeaways. I think that that is the takeaway of the episode. So yeah, as always, thanks for listening and investing your time in us. We would like you to give us a review if you got the time. You can check us out at paperteam.co, that's .co slash iTunes, paperteam.co slash iTunes. I can't wait for uh, Kenya Reeves to uh, give us a review on, on our episode. <laughs> Kenya Reeves, Robert McKee, Aaron, so, oh, yeah. God. Aaron we're Sorkin, gonna, At some Weiner. point in the show notes, we're going to put up a list of our enemies. <laughs> enemy, like Richard Nixon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're racking him up. As always, you can uh, find us online. I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. And I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any uh, feedback, thoughts, hate mail, you can send it to ask at paperteam.co, that's co.com. All right. What are we talking about next week? Well, next week, we're going to be joined by your running partner, Kelly, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be discussing the differences between being on a running team versus a solo rider. Nice. That should be fun. Let's see that next week. We'll see you then.